The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able to remain standing where you are for the reading of God's Word, you can turn with me to Nehemiah. Nehemiah and the first chapter. Nehemiah chapter 1, we were returning to our series, The Crisis and the Christian. Crisis and the Christian. And this is our fourth study. Uh, We've taken a look at three other studies trying to understand how the believer is to live in this present world by the grace of God, a broken world with crisis after crisis, personal, marital, all kinds of crisis, national, economic, military, war, all kinds, uh, natural crises that we see in a broken world like famines and earthquakes. And then, of course, we face one. So we want to take a look at our fourth study as we put together the framework to understand how the Christian is to respond to crisis. Now, if you would, come to God's Word with me. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the twentieth year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who has survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. Would you please be seated? I want you to keep your Bibles open because I'm not through reading for you from Nehemiah chapter 1, but uh, I want to say something to set the text and the context before we go further in Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, But I want to come back to why this series. Now, we're returning to it. Harry, why are we returning to it? Well, we broke it in the middle so that we could celebrate Holy Week. We could celebrate uh, Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and then Resurrection Lord's Day. Now, having celebrated those services, we're returning back to the series that I'd already done three sermons on, Crisis and the Christian. Crisis and the Christian. And what we've done is try to put together how should a believer with a Christian world in life view, framed by the Word of God, enabled by the Spirit of God, how do you look at a crisis, whether it's COVID-19, corona crisis, whether it's a famine crisis, right now in the Midwest, I understand there's a very severe drought that's there, that's a crisis for farmers, certainly, and then when it becomes a crisis for farmers, it becomes a crisis for you at your dinner table, so there are crises. 
crises all around. And uh, so how are we to view those in a broken world? Well, we've already laid down three framing statements. Let me give them to you. Our first study was from Titus 2, 11 through 14. And in Titus 2, 11 through 14, it speaks of past grace, that the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. That is, the incarnation of Christ was the grace of God that had appeared, Emmanuel, God with us, full of glory, who came to die for our sins, bringing salvation. And then we learn uh, that the grace of God is instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now here, underline this, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Look, and so that's where we are now, present age. The present age, Jesus tells us, until he comes again, is going to have what he calls birth pangs. The sign of his coming and the introduction into a new heavens and a new earth for his people is the gospel is preached to all the nations and all of the elect of God from every nation is brought to Christ. Then comes the end. Well... The birth pangs that show us that delivering moment is coming are crises such as famines and earthquakes and false teachers and uh, economic crisis and all kinds of crises are here. Therefore, they're here. They're going to be with us. How should we how should we then live? He said, here's what God's grace teaches you in the midst of crises. Here's three words for you. Live sensibly, live righteously and live godly, live sensibly Faith does not lead to an irrational lifestyle. Faith is not leaping into the dark. Faith is walking in the light. Sensible. And when you live sensibly, that means you're being, your, your way of life is being illuminated by the Word of God. So that means you're living righteously, attempting to be obedient to God's Word. Not to be saved, because our obedience can't save us, but because Jesus has saved us, we want to obey Him as our Lord and Savior. So you live sensibly, righteously, and godly. That is a God-centered life, not a self-centered life. Not a world-centered life, but a God-centered life. So that in crisis, we are prudent without panic. We are trusting God without tempting God. We are living faithfully and therefore fearlessly, that our fears do not control us. It is the fear of the Lord that liberates us in the trusting of the Lord, our majestic Savior. Well, that was the first thing. That's a general overview of how the, how the Christian lives with crisis. And then we said, now let's go to a case study. And we went to the life of Joseph. Now there's an interesting guy. His favorite, his, his father's favorite son with his favorite coat that gets sold by his brothers into slavery and put in a pit, taken out of a pit, went into slavery at a man called Potiphar, Potiphar's house, who was the captain of the guard of Pharaoh. And there, because uh, being faithful to the Lord, he withstood the seduction of Pharaoh's wife. But that uh, all that got him was thrown into jail in terms of the world. And there he was, uh, he ministered to two prison mates. And um, there, one was supposed to remember him when he got out, and he didn't. But then later 
later did at just the right time years later. And this man who served the Lord in uh, in the pit in Pharaoh's and Potiphar's house and now is taken from a prison and he's going to be put in Pharaoh's house. And he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Only one greater will be Pharaoh himself. And then comes the famine, and uh, he has already received a vision, interpreted the vision for Pharaoh. Seven years of plenty, seven, seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. He sets up the policies, and not only is Egypt saved, but also the surrounding nations, including this burgeoning tribal family from Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob. And now his brothers come to him, and now they are received and cared for. And when Jacob dies, they're scared to death. They're going to be, uh, they're going to receive the, the retribution and, and justice that they deserve for what they did to Joseph, who is now has all this power. And when they come to him with uh, repentance and request for forgiveness, he basically says to them this glorious statement. What you meant for evil, God meant for good to bring this about. So what's our second principle about the Christian in crisis? It is a part of God's providence which is multifaceted and multidimensional. It is, it is that element of God's providence and the sovereign hand of God that is multifaceted and multidimensional. In other words, look at all, this is what Joseph is saying. Look at all God's done through this. You meant it for evil, but God is sovereign in his providence. And as Joseph responded by God's grace sensibly, righteously, and godly, no matter where he was, Potiphar's house, palace, prison, pit, wherever he was, he now was able to see what God was doing, at least to some degree. That's why I've always tried to explain God's providence and various word pictures. And one of them is uh, it's kind of like a, a, a other preachers have used this, too. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. And what I'm trying to do with you is crisis. How do you look at a crisis? Well, it's kind of like a jigsaw puzzle when you're looking at God's providence. You know there's something there, but you don't have the picture on the box. God has the picture. But what you do have are the pieces. And you know they're in the hand of a sovereign God. Now, what do you do? I don't know about you. Here's what I do when I do a jigsaw puzzle. I look for the four corner pieces. And that's what I'm trying to give you in this series are the corner pieces. Corner piece number one, this is God's providence. He's sovereign, lives sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Corner piece number two, God's providence is multidimensional, multifaceted. It's not just all about you. God's doing all kinds of things in a crisis like this. He's saving these people. He's saving those people. He's refining this person. He's doing this. with. He, is do, he superintends these things in his sovereign hand in glorious ways, just like the days of Joseph. Not only did Joseph learn what it meant to be a brother, but Joseph was used to teach his brothers what it meant to be a brother to him. Not only did he, uh, not only did he expose his father's favoritism, uh, but he was able to learn uh, how he ought to respond to these matters. And then 
him. And not only does he does he able to feed his brothers, he's now able to fulfill God's promise to Abraham that the people of God were going to be made into a nation for God in a nation that wasn't a nation. And they're going to be there for 400 plus years. And then God's going to bring them out. And that's why he says, just keep my bones because one day you're coming out of here and take me with you. See, God's working in this person's life, that person's life, this event, that event. That's what's happening in in uh, crises. And then we looked at a third lesson. And the third lesson was straight from the mouth of Jesus when he was asked about two crises in Luke 13. And this is what he said. He said, what about the Galileans who were killed by Pilate and their blood mingled with the sacrifice? What about what about the tower at the pool of Siloam, the scaffolding that fell and killed 18 people? You keep asking who sinned, them or their parents? He said, what you need to realize is every time you look at a crisis, it's a reminder we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the great catastrophe that looms in the future is the judgment seat. And you want to be ready. And praise God, the one who said, repent or perish, is the one under Pilate whose blood would be mingled as our sacrifice at Calvary, Jesus. That's why we can repent and not perish. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Every crisis is a reminder. It is a measured reminder that sin costs and the wages is death. Flee to Christ. Every single one of them. But there's not only a foundational and urgent message, but there's something else I want you to see. Folks, when a crisis comes, the response of people tells you their world and life view. Their initial reflexive response tells you their world and life view. Would you mind this pastor giving you my analysis right now of the United States of America? Historically, when we have faced crises, we've had presidents like Washington and Lincoln uh, and others, as well as governors and mayors, that when these problems come, yellow fever plagues, diphtheria, wars, famines, whatever, they would almost always call for a day of prayer, humiliation and fasting. And by the way, let me be grateful that President Trump did the same thing uh, back on uh, last Good Friday. But that's what they would do. But overall, that's not what we're doing. You know what we're doing? We're gathering data. We're analyzing the data. We're creating models, which, by the way, most of which have not been accurate. And we are now regulating our behavior first by our analysis of the data and the models. Now, listen to me. Do not leave here and say, Harry is anti-science. I am not. Nobody likes to look at data to solve problems more than me. I promise you. Nobody. But that, while that is a right move, that ought not to be our first move. A crisis reveals and refines. A crisis reveals your world and life view, your strengths, your weaknesses. 
And a crisis can be an opportunity to refine your life in light of your world in life view. One of the things that's become obvious with the onslaught of secular humanism, the various revolutions that are sweeping our culture, is not only, not only is our first move to our data, if anybody moves to prayer, they're ridiculed. Our Vice President Pence put together a task force to lead us in this of brilliant men, and then he asked them to join him in prayer. That was ridicule, as if that was the only thing he was going to do. It wasn't the only thing he was going to do, but it was the first thing he asked them to do. I would suggest to you, he's right. The naysayers are wrong. When crisis comes, our first move, not our only move, Our first move should be fervent intercessory prayer. God, you're sovereign. Why is this here? What are you doing? What are you saying? God, we need strength. We need peace. We need wisdom. But man in vanity and arrogance says no to intercessory prayer and yes to vain imagination. Oh, I don't need God. I just need to analyze the data. Did you not see this so abundantly clear when the present governor of New York goes to a press conference and as he tells everybody how they ought to be living and then he deals with the fact that churches are gathering to pray? Remember the statement? It was really interesting. The curve has flattened. God didn't flatten the curve. We did. I have been praying that God would use this crisis to bring humility to our nation. And I'm still praying that. But boy, was that discouraging to hear that from one of our elected officials. Instead of humbling ourselves... Instead of calling upon God, on the contrary, our first movement is data management and modeling instead of intercessory prayer. Now, hear me. I didn't say prayer is all we did, but it is what we do first. And what I'd like to do is just walk walk with you very quickly through the text in front of us and see if you can just see it with me in the life of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is facing a personal and national crisis. Now, where is Nehemiah? Let me give you a little bit of a context first. Let me give you the context. Israel has been liberated from Egypt. They have crossed the Red Sea. They have gone through the wilderness 40 years and then led in by Joshua and later governed by judges. They've occupied the promised land. Then they were given King Saul, followed by King David, followed by King Solomon in what we call the United Kingdom. But after Solomon, the kingdom divided because of sin throughout Israel. It divided into two different un- two different nations, as it were. There There was the northern kingdoms, ten of them, that were called Israel, and then the two southern kingdoms that were called Judah. And uh, that was Judah and Benjamin. They remained faithful. The other ten apostatized. And then came prophets like Elijah and Elisha, and they kept calling out to the people, repent, because you're engaged in spiritual adultery. In fact, their language was a lot more colorful than I just used.
interviews. I, I kind of doctored it up for Sunday morning here. It, they called them to spiritual adultery and told them they were sinning against the Lord and they needed to repent because the covenant faithfulness of God, great is thy faithfulness. He is not only faithful to his promises, he's also faithful to his warnings. And one of his warnings is this. If my people abandon me, then I will take nations that are not my nation. Not, they're not a covenanted nation. And I will bring them to my covenanted nation that I have chosen to bring forth a redeemer in which I am working. And if you are unfaithful, I'll bring that nation to bring judgment, the hand of discipline upon you. And that is exactly what happened in the 8th century. As the kingdom of Assyria is brought down in judgment upon the ten northern tribes. Well, the southern tribes, you'd think they'd learn from that, but they didn't. They also continued in the way of apostasy. And therefore, in the sixth century, he brought another nation to bring judgment on the two southern tribes. And that was the Babylonian Empire and the Babylonian captivity. And as he takes them into captivity through Jeremiah and Daniel, he told them this will be for 70 years. That was the prophecy. And then God raised up another kingdom to defeat Babylon. And that kingdom was the Medo-Persian Empire. And they had a king named Cyrus that God called his anointed to set his people free and send them back to Jerusalem. And they came back to Jerusalem all full of vim and vigor uh, that they're going to reclaim the city, reclaim and rebuild the temple. They had a governor named Zerubbabel. They had a high priest named Joshua. And they had a great teacher named Ezra along with prophets who came with them. And they had a good beginning at Jerusalem and initially beginning the second temple and then they became discouraged. And now, now four, in the year 445 to 450 in those years Everything has fallen apart. In fact, Israel has just become a tramping ground for the nations. And Jerusalem is walked over constantly. Nehemiah, we know his father's name was Hakaliah. We know that he is well positioned in the Medo-Persian Empire under a king by the name of Artaxerxes II. And under Artaxerxes II, we're, we're told he's the cupbearer. Now, you read cupbearer, think of a guy just bringing out a cup. Well, that's where it starts. The cupbearer for a king in those days, there was hardly anybody more powerful. He was a counselor. He was always with them. I mean, have you ever watched our presidents walk around with those people with sunglasses and, um, and um, uh, right next to them? And there are some that are very close and you see them all the time. That's the cupbearer. Uh, he wasn't quite in the cabinet, but he was close. He was a counselor. Uh, the, the king had to have absolute confidence in him. He, he was the head of his secret service. He was everything for him. And, and Artaxerxes had great trust in Nehemiah. So there's Nehemiah among the most powerful people of the world, the Medo-Persian Empire. In the citadel of power, Susa, the capital. And his concern is for the people of God. His concern is for the citadel of God, Jerusalem. So he asked two questions. Question number one. The text tells us that he says this. How are the people who have been left in Jerusalem? And Hanani, likely a relative brother, Hanani 
then answers that question and then the second question. And the second question was, how is the city of God, the citadel of God, Jerusalem? And Hananiah says, basically, I've got nothing but bad news. The people are distressed and shamed. The nations around them ridiculed them, mocked them. They walk in and out of Jerusalem like God's people aren't even there. They're distressed. They're impoverished. And they are being shamed and mocked. And then the city, the walls are down. The gates are burned. Nothing prevents the adversaries from walking in and taking whatever they want, whenever they want it. And that is their condition. A national crisis, a personal crisis. What is it Nehemiah does? Nehemiah has two responses. He has an immediate response. And then he has a considered response. His immediate response is described by three words. And I want you to read with me in the text what he does. Go with me to Nehemiah chapter 1 and look at verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, the report of Hanani. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which notice not just them, we, we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandment, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, so your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven. From there, I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your earth be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. So what is his immediate response? Three things. When I heard this, one, I sat down. Notice he didn't go to an action plan. He sat down. Secondly, he wept. Thirdly, he mourned. That's the word. We get another word there. Lamented. He not simply wept. It was a soul agonizing lamentation that he felt in his soul. And that went on for days and days. It wasn't just, well, let me sit down and do this. No, it was a reflexive response 
And that first response was not solve the problem, not gather the data, not create a model. His first response was to sit down, weep, and lament. Then came his considered response. He then did what would be consistent with lamentation. He fasted and prayed. One of the least used means of grace that God has given us, fasting. It's always in concert with prayer. It's never alone. It's not a work of self, um, self-affliction. It is giving up even the most necessary things in life to cast yourself upon the Lord who is the one who is necessary for all of life. Whether it's a temper, whether it's a periodic fast of food or drink or this or that or whatever it might be, it is setting aside that which would capture our attention and affection, even the necessities of life that are good. There's nothing evil about them unless you use them sinfully, like food and drink. You can do that to the glory of God, but you set that aside to have intimacy, unhindered intimacy and repentance before God. And then he prayed. This is fervent prayer. Fervent intercessory prayer. Let me give you three parts of it. Boy, this deserves a lot more treatment, but let me just give you a brief treatment. Number one, the first part of his prayer By the way, it's an important prayer, not only because of what it says, but what it doesn't say. What's the first part of his prayer? Adoration and affirmation. He adores and affirms God for who he is, the great redeemer, covenant keeping God. He affirms God for who he is and what he has done. He affirms him and he adores him for who he is. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't complain. He doesn't, God, how can you do this? No, he begins knowing why God has done this and why God is sovereignly using this. He is not telling God, give us what we deserve, because he knows that's exactly what they are getting is what they deserve and more. So he doesn't complain. He worships. He adores and affirms the majesty of God. Then what does he do? He confesses. uh, Then he confesses and he repents of his sin and the sins of the people. Then he confesses and repents. Notice again, you don't see anger at God. You don't see complaints. What you see is an adoration and affirmation of who God is. He knows his God, his covenant keeping God. And then he confesses and he repents because he knows the reason they're in this situation is because of their sin. This is part of God's covenant faithfulness. The God who took them out of out of Egypt with the Exodus is the one who said to them, if you go play the harlot with other gods, then I will use a nation to discipline you. He knows why this is here. So he affirms and adores God for his covenant keeping faithfulness. 
His covenant keeping, you're going to experience this if you're a parent. Be faithful with your children. You don't have to be their friend, be their parent. Later on, you'll be their friend. And they'll come to you and they'll thank you for being the parent. Here, he is not rejoicing in the condition of the people, but he is rejoicing that God loves his people enough to discipline them. So he adores him. He affirms him. Then he engages in confession and repentance. Not He's not complaining. He's not filled with bitterness. No, on the contrary, he understands. Listen, folks, let me, let me just share this with you. Anything and everything you experience in this world, even the temporal judgments of God's discipline, anything and everything we experience in this world is still, the, anything and everything we experience in this world, short of hell has always got God's grace in it somewhere. Always. The only unmixed judgment of God with no grace is the eternal judgment of hell. And he says, God, you're being gracious to us in this. So we repent and confess the patience of God should lead us to repentance. So we confess and we repent. Then the third thing he does is he then calls out with request and petition, supplication. God, deliver us. Hear our repentance. Give us repentance and then restore your people. Now, folks, listen, this isn't the only thing he's going to do. But it is the first thing that he does. It's the initial response. It's the considered response. And it is the first thing that he doesn't start to solve the problem. What he starts to do is call upon God because he knows what the real problem is. And that is the sins of the people. So he declares the majesty and glory of God. And then he begins to deal with their, with their sins in confession. And then he calls out with supplication and requests that God would deliver them. Now, then it says, I'm the cupbearer to the king. Can I tell you one of the reasons why I think he says it right there? Yes, he wants you to know um, who he is. But can I tell you something else he's telling you? Other than King Artaxerxes, there is nobody more positioned to solve this problem than Nehemiah. Nehemiah has access to all kinds of resources. But Nehemiah wants you to know, I may be positioned in the citadel of Susa, but my heart is with the citadel of God. I may be among powerful people and be one of the powerful people, but I have humbled myself to be with the people of God. And the answer is not the resources I have as second to the king. The answer is found in the king of glory. There's where the answer is found. And that's why he goes to prayer. So what's the takeaway? Here's our fourth lesson. Here's our fourth lesson. Our fourth lesson is this concerning crises and the Christian. While in the providence of God, crises, that is the plural, are inevitable. Multidimensional and all contain a foundational and urgent message, repent or perish. That sums up our other three lessons. Now, but crises also contain a foundational and urgent call to fervent prayer. It's not the only thing you do. 
But it is the most important. Have you ever noticed how people say, well, I can't help you, but the least I can do is pray. No, 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 no. Now, if you've got if you can do more than pray, then do more than pray. But that's prayer is never the least you can do. It's the first you do and the best you can do. It's not the only thing you do. In fact, listen, Nehemiah is not going to just pray. He is going to pray and ask God in prayer to bless what he's now about about to do. And the giveaway is very simple. Where were his concerns? He was concerned about the people and he was concerned about the city. And so what is he going to do? Chapters 1 through 6, he is going to revive the people by reviving the city. He's going to rebuild the walls. Then then he's going to be used of God to bring revival to the people the last six chapters of Nehemiah. The first six chapters, rebuild the city. And through the rebuilding of the city, the people are going to become revived. He has got other things yet to do, but they're not the first thing that he does. The first thing he does is pray. It is the most important thing that he does. Fervent prayer that adores God, that affirms God, that confesses sin, repents of sin and petitions God for God's presence and God's power with great diligence, with great intensity, fervent prayer, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. But folks, we don't have because we don't ask. And when we do ask, we ask wrongly. Do you remember what James says? You have not because you ask not. And when you do ask, you ask wrongly to consume it upon yourself. Even in a crisis, have you watched? It's more me than my knee. It's more me than my knee. It's about me. So, my friend, Second Chronicles 7.14 is ours. As Christians, if my people, God's covenant people, that's us. That's not any other nation other than God's covenant people. The royal nation of God who is being called together by the grace of God through the gospel of God from all the nations of the world. Now, if my people, God's covenant people, the church of Jesus Christ in this land leads the way, humbles ourselves, sit down, weep. Mourn, lament, and calls upon me, then I will hear. That's our call as believers. I don't expect the mayor, the governor, I don't expect any of them to do it unless they know Jesus. We're the ones to do it. It begins with us that we call upon the Lord in prayer. Nehemiah is exhibit A of Second Chronicles 7.14. He humbles himself and he prays as a son of the living God who has been redeemed by its grace. This is so simple, but it's so elusive. It's so elusive because we don't look to God for prevailing power. We look to ourselves, our models, our data, our, men, our, our mechanisms. That's the first thing that we look for instead of looking to the Lord himself. We get absorbed with the information. We get absorbed with our analysis. Can I say it again in case somebody is just 
listening to me. I love to study the data. I love to use the intelligent quotient that God gives us to deal with issues. But here's the reason I do. It's not because I control them. It's because God is so glorious. He has set these laws into place. So where should I go first? Should I go to myself and my analysis or should I go to the God who has established all of the laws that govern humanity and his creation and ask him for wisdom while I repent of my sin and ask him to forgive me and my people? That's where we ought to be in prayer in our homes. There's no excuse now. (laughs) You haven't got 16 other appointments to make. Call upon the Lord right now in houses. You know, when I look, let me just finish with this. When I look at uh, President Trump, every time I see him, and I've seen him a lot recently on the newscast and the press conferences, I'm reminded to pray for him, and I do, because the Bible calls me to pray for him. Prayed for, I gave out the book, Prayers for President Obama. I, I, I believe that we're called to pray for our governors, our magistrates, our policemen, our presidents, our senators. Pray for all of them. Always two prayers. One, that they know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And number two, that they be given wisdom, if not by redeeming grace, then common grace to properly lead and make decisions. But I've got another reason I pray for President Trump that reminds me to pray for him and actually leads me to pray for revival. The last known revival, I love the study of the revivals in Scotland. The Scottish people have had many revivals because I think um, my ancestors have always been in great need of revivals. The last one was in the Hebrides Islands. Lewis Island, the Isle of Lewis, the Isle of Harris. And the epicenter was a little village named Viveris. And next to it, another little village named Tong. Now, the clans have their names. And one of the clans was the McLeods, and another clan was, uh, another family group was called Smith. And two octogenarian in the late 1940s, two octogenarians, Peggy and Christine Smith, one of them bent over double with stenosis of the spine, would call people to their barn outside of their croft for intercessory prayer that we would be forgiven of our sins in Scotland. It was on the aftermath of the war. Would you be, they had seen all of the stuff that accompanies war. They'd seen all of the license, seen all of the drunkenness. And they called upon God for forgiveness. Cleanse us. And the prayer meeting grew. The pastor started coming. They asked the pastor, now, pastor, you are born again, right? Yeah. So the pastor was with them and they were praying. They had a little cousin, a 15 year old boy named Donald Smith. And he was praying. And revival came to the Isle of Lewis. You can read about it. And it's the last great revival in Scotland that we're aware of. The Smith family, Christine and Peggy Smith, and their nephew named Donald Smith, they also had a niece 
named Mary Ann Smith McLeod. She, a decade earlier, before the revival, had migrated to America. She met a man in New York. His name was Fred. And she, a domestic worker, met him. And Mary Ann Smith McLeod married Fred Trump. These, this niece of Peggy and Christine Smith, her cousin, Donald Smith, the 15-year-old boy, was so moved by God, he became, all intents and purposes, the assistant pastor of the church. And he had a Bible that he wrote in constantly, journaling all the time. And after Marianne Smith was married, her aunts, Christine and Peggy, came into possession of Donald Smith's journal, journaling and his Bible and sent that Bible to Mary Ann Smith. She had five children with Fred. One of them she named for her cousin, Donald Trump. She gave him one Bible when he was confirmed. She died in 2000. And he received the Bible from Donald Smith, his namesake, with all the notes of the Great revivals. It now, the Bible that his mother gave him for confirmation was one of the two Bibles that he placed his hand on that's now in the museum of the Bible. But this Bible from Donald Smith is in the Oval Office. Now, I'm not superstitious. <laughs> I know that vibes aren't coming out of that Bible. But every time I look at President Trump, I think of Peggy and Christine Smith. And I pray for God's saving grace to be at work in my president. And I pray for God's reviving grace to be at work in my nation. God, raise up another Peggy and Christine Smith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for the great privilege to know and love and serve you. Would you help us, O oh God, to understand that the crisis does not define the Christian. The word of God defines how the Christian responds to the crisis. We want to live sensibly, righteously and godly. We want to be confident that you providentially are doing things multidimensional, multifaceted. We want to hear the call to repent lest you perish from our Savior. But we also want to hear the foundational and urgent call to fervent prayer, knowing the effective prayer, the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Oh God, make us people of prayer. Would you take just a few moments? May the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. Perhaps you have joined us today. And the Lord has drawn you here to hear the glorious truth that a sovereign God has loved you. And in the midst of crises is calling you to faith and repentance in Christ. 
And that you can be saved from the judgment to come by being saved from your sins now. And you have this first prayer. Oh God, great is thy faithfulness. I turn from my sin to put my trust in you. Be merciful to me, the sinner. And I give you praise that in Jesus there is forgiveness and everlasting life. And I surrender to Christ today. And then, Father, for us, your people, in the midst of this crisis, call us to sit down, to weep over the sins prevailing throughout our nation, the killing of the unborn, the pornography. All of the sins that are washing us with darkness and despair. Help us to repent, confess, and cast our heart and our lives upon you and fervently ask you. Oh, Jesus, bring revival to your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.